From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. One year ago, we relaunched this show with a whole new staff. From GPB News, I'm Virginia Prescott, and On Second Thought is back. This election is going to be for the soul of our state. This democracy only works... We have stuck by public radio's dedication to feeding the brain with ideas and perspectives and our goal to make radio that surprises and delights you. So to celebrate this anniversary, we've got our whole team in the studio to share a guest or conversation that caught us by surprise this past year. LaRaven Taylor, I'm starting with you. You're the most veteran producer on our team. So what was your most memorable conversation on the show? So I chose the Tiari Jones um, I feel like, you know, like you said, our team likes to be delighted and surprised. And for a producer, we like to be surprised and delighted off air. And so she came and she talked to us, you know, in the mic check about just being that relatable person going to Waffle House and, you know, <laughs> writing handmade letters to her pen pals. And I just thought that was just so sweet. And here's a clip of her actually talking about Waffle House. My parents live here in Atlanta. Like when I leave here, I'm going to go um, pick up daddy and we're going to go to Waffle House. And I'm going to take this hour, hour and a half and have Waffle House with my dad. Yes, I have four more appointments today. I have to drive to Athens, but I will spend this time with daddy because, you know, this time is precious and it helps me to be home to remember that. I think it was also very special because all of the producers worked on it. Everybody loved her so much. They yes. were sort of, rather than divvying it up, they all worked on it yes. together. Yes, a New York Times bestseller and Oprah Book Club person. I mean, and she still goes to Waffle House and, you know, has that love letter to Atlanta. I can't. <laughs> she was great. Uh, all right, Amelia, you picked up a story about an Atlanta mailman, Floyd Martin, who'd worked the same route in Marietta for something like 30 years, if I remember. Yeah. When he announced his retirement, his customers threw him a block party, raised money to send him to Hawaii for his celebration. What, I mean, why did that hit you so hard? Well, you know, this story had already been covered so much. It, it was in the AJC, it was in BuzzFeed, it was in People Magazine, Washington Post ended up doing something about it. So when I went into this, I thought I knew what the story was. And so I remember in the pre-interview, I was asking him things that I had kind of already read. And then I asked one more question, which was, what did you do outside of work? And that's when he told us that he had been an activist for HIV and AIDS awareness. He'd had friends and partners who had died. And he was delivering mail and, like, giving bones to dogs and, you know, saying hello to the children during the day. But then, you know, trying to change the course of this epidemic in his free time. And I, I just thought that was so, so moving. Well, let's hear from him. He's, he's talking about how the AIDS epidemic impacted him and how it related into his job as a mailman and how he interacted with others. Life is a gift. Life isn't promised. No day is promised. So I think the reason I connected so much with my customers is because I've seen life and I've seen death. And I know that you have to let people know how you feel about them while they're here. And I guess that's what I was doing, you know. I would ask them how they are. I really wanted to know. You know, they knew that I cared. They knew that they were special. And they, they knew that I had love for them. Oh, <laughs> Floyd. I think we're all super touched by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost cried when I was listening to it this morning to, to pick this cut. And, you know, 
Floyd in that interview told us how he turned grief and fear and mourning into this kind of beautiful perspective on humanity. And I think that's that's what really came through, um, this, this beautiful person. I love that we got to share it with our listeners, but I also love that I got to encounter him as a person and learn from him. Yeah. The other thing is he wrote to us afterwards and said how meaningful it was for him to say this out loud. Like, this is something he had never been public about. And that... that that's got me all choked up now. Um, all right, Priya, you got to relieve us. We've got you're our newest producer, Priya Mahadevan. You've only been with us just over a month, so you tuned in to some of On Second Thought before making your way over. What stood out for you? Yeah, so when I got the job, I was like, okay, I have to listen to On Second Thought, and I would listen to it in the podcast form on my runs in the morning. And the one that really stood out to me was the clip with the CDC pie makers. Oh, right. The couple, they, they both, they right. put out a, they met at the CDC, both scientists, and they put out a cookbook all about pies. Right, right. And running does not usually make me hungry. But while I was listening to this, there was this description of their favorite pie about the, it was like a cheese pie. So we've modeled it after like what you, a cheese course you'd get after a, a fancy meal. So it's a walnut graham cracker crust. A layer of um, fig and port wine jam, and then a, a cream on top made with gorgonzola dolce blue cheese. They were so delightful, and that actually worked very well in making me hungry, too. I was salivating while running. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the other thing about them is you know, you see, okay, there's a new pie cookbook, but then you learn a little bit about their story. And that, to me, is one of the great wonders of, you know, you dig a little deeper on any story and something else gets revealed. Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. That was the Raven Taylor, Amelia Brock, and Priya Mahadevan of the On Second Thought team. We're on the other side of the microphones today to mark the one-year anniversary of the relaunch of this show. And we're going to hear from the rest of the team after a short break. But first, this is a fitting time to be celebrating our show's one-year anniversary since GPB is in the middle of its fall membership drive. And we're taking just a few moments to remind you that it really is your support that has brought you this show since our relaunch a year ago. And everything that you hear on GPB and it's your support that's going to keep it all going on for years to come so call us now at 800-222-4788 or you can go to gpb.org and click on donate and thank you so much there's more reasons to support the show and everything you hear on GPB we're back with On Second Thought from GBB and Virginia Prescott. And those of us who work on the show are dedicated to connecting Georgia one conversation at a time and hopefully to connect you with people and ideas and things happening in the state that you didn't know about. Today is one year since this show relaunched, and we're celebrating with our team, LaRaven Taylor, Amelia Brock, Priya Mahadevan, Jake Troyer, and Amy Kiley, senior producer, are here in the studio with me. And we've been sharing what have surprised and delighted us about the show in the past year. Jake, what would you like to talk about? Well, I picked this one interview we did with uh, photographer Mary Beth Meehan. She's from Rhode Island. But uh, the city of Noonan here in Georgia actually invited her down to do this big series called Seeing Noonan, where she took photographs of a variety of citizens in the city of Noonan and then created these huge 14 feet, 20 feet wide banners of those photos and hung them all around the town, which first off, just from that, I was in love. <laughs> I looked at the photos, they were gorgeous. But then the interview focused more on the conversation that those portraits sparked in Noonan. There was one person who lodged a complaint. One of the portraits 
featured two young Muslim women who live in Noonan, and that caused quite a firestorm. Uh, but I thought Mary Beth had such a great perspective on how art could spark these conversations in these towns. Let's hear it. The people of Noonan really reached out and really defended those young women and started to talk about the Constitution, started to talk about freedom of religion, started to talk about the kind of community that they want to be. And I think the reason why I'm so proud of this project and why people in Noonan are proud is that these conversations were happening. They weren't about who voted for whom or what political party people belong to. It was about a bigger conversation about how we move forward as a community with disparate voices, but with respect and inclusion. And and people really, I mean, the, the voices in defense of those young women and of them practicing Islam soundly overwhelmed the negative voices. That's such a great choice. I've forgotten about that specific, but she's actually coming back to Noonan to do a walkthrough this week with the people of Noonan so they can definitely hear more. Thank you so much for that, Jake. Amy Kiley, senior producer, I want I, I understand that you want to highlight a member of our team who isn't able to join us in the studio, but who makes our show work or sing. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer, and he couldn't be here today, but he surprised and delighted me because when we hired him, we knew he was going to be a great board operator. We knew he'd know how to mix audio. We did not know that he could compose and perform his own music beds for us. You're hearing a Jesse Nyswanger original right now. It's called Epic Sad Ukulele Piece. <laughs> Edit to Jesse's actually playing the ukulele here. Uh, he also plays guitar. He does some electronic composing and sings and it's been a joy to hear his music every day during our show political rewind and the podcasts on gpb and that's such a jesse name sad ukulele epic sad ukulele piece well i am so often surprised and delighted that it was hard to really narrow down to just one conversation but i did land on one that i did last fall it was right at the beginning after our relaunch with tina clark she wrote a memoir southern discomfort and it's about growing up gay and pretty much mortified in this crazy i would say crazy complicated family clan sympathizing father alcoholic frustrated mother very defined roles of the time in this small southern town and she was so humble and honest about about her sometimes foolish acts of defiance against the racism of the time. She talked about her career as a music producer, and I'm telling you this because you're going to hear a little bit of Aretha Franklin's Christmas record. She gave us an advanced copy of this that she remixed, but let's hear a little bit. After leaving Waynesboro, you lived in Nashville, you went on to California for many years, and now you're back in Georgia. What does that mean to you to be embracing these paradoxes of the South now? I love it. I had to do it. Sorry, I got choked up. It's okay. <laughs> this is the first time I've got choked up That's... on any of these interviews. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, what's happening for you? I'd always fantasized about coming back, but it was just a fantasy. But then I said to my partner, hey, if I can move anywhere back to the South, it'd be Atlanta. So we did it. And I immediately fell in love with this place and thought, this is where I belong. That to me, it's the, the magic of a real conversation, the power and the grace of, of someone's willingness to be unguarded and, and genuine. And to me, it's also a, a, 
it's a kind of respect. It's a kind of trust. And really, I have to say, this may sound very woo-woo, but it's a form of love. It is loving. And I've loved a lot on this show. I've learned a lot on this show. And I must say, been surprised and delighted and informed and enriched every day by my colleagues and uh, by people willing to take the time out to listen to us on their busy day. I'm so grateful for that. So thank you all for a beautiful first year. Here's to many more. <laughs> thank you to Jake Troyer, Amy Kiley, The Raven Taylor, Amelia Brock, Priya Maha Devon, and happy anniversary. And in absentia today, our engineer, Jesse Nyswanger, and Don Smith, an unfailing ear for good grammar, always willing to give a second listen to something. This marks one year since the relaunch of this show, and we've been celebrating by sharing what surprised and delighted us over the past year. And in many ways, you, the listener, are the most important member of our team. It's your support that makes it possible for us to bring you this show every single day. So please think about the times that on second thought might have surprised you. The times it made you laugh or cry or smile or get enraged even. Just think about something that you hadn't considered before. It's our fall fun drive, so you can join us for the first time, continue your support, or even better yet, become a GPB sustainer with an ongoing monthly contribution. Here's how you can help. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This week, GPB Macon is embarking on a year-long look at youth violence, its causes, effects, and possible solutions. Our Macon Bureau is working with reporters from the Macon Telegraph, the Center for Collaborative Journalism at Mercer University, and CBS affiliate 13 WMAZ for multifaceted coverage of the issue. Sonia Green and Evie Wilson of the Center for Collaborative Journalism put together this audio postcard of Macon teenagers talking about how violence has affected their lives. We're not using their names for fear of reprisal. The news is just getting the face value, the surface value of what's actually happening. So, say a report might be a 17-year-old kid gets shot on Blank Blank Avenue or Road and Street, and that's the end of it. But that's not the whole story to it. Like, what's happening inside their families, and what kind of influences are they receiving, you know, what are, what are they consuming that's giving them this drive to want to join a gang or want to just commit acts of violence. When my cousins would come over, the guy cousins, they are very violent, I would say. And well, some people came to my house and searching for my cousin and then they fought in my front yard. They brought guns and stuff and my cousin got shot. And and my daddy went outside trying to calm himself down. We ain't want him to because they had guns. So he and my daddy didn't get shot, but he was yelling at these teenagers who were just fighting outside of my house. You know, your house is supposed to be somewhere where you can go to for comfort and safety. But, you know, over here, I'm, I don't have that safety because there's a lot of violence happening. Even even if I have nothing to do with it, I'm in close proximity with it, so I might end up getting hurt because of somebody else's decisions. Right, because some people only growing up, like, all they see is violence. Like, growing up, that's all they see inside the household and everything, so I mean, they're most likely to follow that same path because they don't have anyone to break the chain or set a different tone.
though, right when you see one person or just even a community being labeled for these things, it's almost as if you're automatically going to fall into that trap where you also do these things because you're already being labeled for something you didn't do. Like mentally, like people, like they get stressed over it and then they don't like want to go to school and stuff and then like their parents are stressed about it and they basically don't want them to go to school either. So. To be honest, before I go to school, I pray because I don't know if I'm going to walk back out the same door. You got to stand with your arms and legs out, they search you, and then you got to walk through the metal detector and all that. It's like prison for the kids, you know. My cousin, um, she was always bullied. She got bullied, like, walking to her front doorstep, and she couldn't handle it no more, and she just she um, committed suicide. So that made a big impact on me because we were the same age, and so when that happened, I was looking at the world a bit different. I personally think that law enforcement just makes the violence even worse, like just coming around, you know, trying to get people in trouble and stuff. Like, I understand it's gang violence, but they really just amplify what's going on. Well, I think it also goes into race and gender, too. Just because you see somebody that might look suspicious because they're African-American or Caucasian or Muslim or something, that doesn't mean they actually did something. So I think that definitely goes in a big part of violence. I didn't have a, a father figure for a long time because my real biological dad, he, he's not in my life. So when I got my stepdad, because my mom recently was married like five years ago, and I got my stepdad, it was really like, it opened me up, like it was real different. It's like, it took some time to adjust, but like you really have a father figure at home, somewhere you can go to, because everybody needs their mom or their dad for different things in life. Since it's not me having a father figure, I sometimes used to like go to my uncle, and you know, he really helped me out with some stuff. And you know, that really changed my perspective. You know, I felt like, oh, I have somebody. You know, I have somebody that's a um, male, male and I can look up to. You know, there are some people out there who care. It doesn't have to be your parents that care about you, even though that would be nice. Just any adult that wants to see you do good would probably push you to you know, be a better person, you know, no acts of violence towards other people because you have someone who's counting on you to, you know, do good. Teenagers in Macon there in the first installment of a year-long examination of youth violence. Are you or someone you know being affected by youth violence? Is your community doing something to stem the growing problem? We'd love to hear your story. You can find out how to submit it at gpbnews.org. Your support right now makes a big difference in our ability to provide smart, relevant content like this reporting collaborative out of our Macon Bureau. It also makes it possible for us to bring you On Second Thought every weekday. I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that our fall fun drive is in progress. If we haven't yet heard from you, make this the time you join us for the first time. Renew your support or better yet, become a GPB sustainer with a monthly contribution. Here's how.
We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 1619, the year the first Africans kidnapped from their land were brought to America as slaves. By 1790, enslaved people accounted for nearly a third of Georgia's population. Many worked from sunup to sundown. The drudgery and relief from it was turned into songs that became Negro spirituals. As part of GPB's Month of Music, Ross Terrell reports on what those songs carried from the days of slavery to the civil rights movement to today. It's 2019, but the sounds of Negro spirituals echo through the walls of the music building at Kennesaw State University. That's where the Georgia Spiritual Ensemble gathers to lend their voices to an oral tradition that dates back to the late 1860s. The group was founded by Oral Moses about 14 years ago. Moses says this music is all Africans had when they were brought here as nothing more than property. This music came out of them as a way to assuage their feelings, to deal with their everyday situations. And these songs really sort of sprang into existence. And I wanted to know what some of those songs were. Woke up this morning with my mind. Uh, Nobody knows the trouble I see. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Negro spirituals were sometimes called sorrow songs. But Moses says he doesn't think that's an accurate description of what the music meant to the nearly 30,000 enslaved people throughout Georgia. But if you really listen to the words, they are really fighting back with words. When they couldn't speak, when they were punished for speaking, they put it in a song. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. In fact, that's one of the resounding themes of these songs, freedom. Whether it's from following the North Star on the Underground Railroad through Savannah's first African Baptist church to Bloody Sunday trying to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, these songs have served as the backbone of African-American resilience. And David Morrow teaches that. He's a professor at Morehouse College in Atlanta, a city often viewed as the cradle of civil rights. He says well after slavery was outlawed, black people continue to use spirituals just like their ancestors. And what they did in the civil rights movement very often was to adapt the text to the current circumstance, using it the same way, using it to bring people together, using it to cope with the situation. That song, made popular during the movement, is directly linked to the Negro spiritual, Don't Let Nobody Turn You Round. You change the words a little bit, and it's almost the same melody, because they were using it for marches. Keep on a-walking, keep on a-talking, marching up to freedom land. So we add that part to it, 
and you have a direct descendant. The strength of these songs has withstood the test of time and even today can find its way into popular music. The Negro spiritual, I Want Jesus to Walk With Me, flowed out of the mouths of Africans and trickled into the 2004 Kanye West song, Jesus Walks. God, show me the way because the devil's trying to break me down. But it's in the Baptist church where you will hear songs like Poor Man Lazarus, one the Georgia Spiritual Ensemble continues to perform. And when he died, he went straight to hell. It's the value of spirituals that drives Ebony Collier to spend part of her Sunday belting them out with other members in the Georgia Ensemble. For Collier, these songs are about finding her identity. Slavery was anything to be ashamed of. Like there was something that came out of that, you know, and a lot of people just want to put it behind them. She says even more than 150 years after slavery was abolished in America, in just six decades after schools in Georgia were desegregated, there's still a message people can take away from the songs that Africans so earnestly depended on. Although we're not dealing with, per se, slavery, the trials that we have today will still give us a way to hear that there is victory in something we can look forward to at the end. It's the legacy of Negro spirituals that fuels Collier to sing, that led Oral Moses to start an ensemble, and it's why David Morrow continues to teach the songs to students at a historically black college that once educated Martin Luther King Jr. and Maynard Jackson. Because if the descendants of those that created the spirituals don't pass them on, then who will? That was Ross Terrell on the powerful resonance of Negro spirituals. The feature is part of GBB's September music series, and you can follow along with our coverage and join in on the conversation using the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. You'll find us on Twitter at OST Talk or in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. And tell us, where do you hear the influence of Negro spirituals or gospel music in contemporary culture? I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that it is your support that makes it possible for us to bring you On Second Thought, GPB's month-long ode to music, and all the programs you hear on GPB. Right now, during our fall fund drive, that's your opportunity to do your part. The amount is up to you. What counts is that we hear from you. Here's how you can help. 